thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Cause the flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take that away. And I'm proud to be. Welcome to one of our favorite traditions at The Rock, Remembrance Day 2020. I'm Phil DeVos. Over this hour, we'll hear the story of a farm boy from Spy Hill, Saskatchewan, who in the 1950s Korean conflict became a signalman. Those months um, spent in Korea were both the best times of his life, but also some of the worst times of his life. That's Tamara Hall long-serving, now-retired school teacher and principal, talking about her dad, the late Wally Ostman. Tammy was the brains behind the Yorkton Legion Banner Project, banners honoring local veterans, graphic banners, a Remembrance Day lead-up on Yorkton's Broadway Avenue. Featured in this hour of remembrance, she explains how the project evolved. We try to, again, bring in that human element, because it's important not to celebrate war. We don't want to do that. Nobody wants a war. Nobody wants to send our young men and women off to battle. Nobody wants to have them come home alive to continue their young lives. But what we want to do is to say, let's remember what happened, let's recognize what happened, and let's try to make sure that we don't let it happen again. Let's celebrate peace. Let's find out ways that we can prevent this from ever happening again. And with Jack Dawes, we'll hear Tammy's story of her dad, Wally Osman, a story of service in the Forgotten War. Then, too, there were three friends from Stockholm, Saskatchewan, who met as WW2 Canadian soldiers in France and Belgium in very unexpected ways. I mean, they, w- they would visit with other people. There was lots of fun, lots of joking and stuff like that. But there was this deep respect for each other, which I think today maybe, we're, maybe we have to learn from them because they had such a respect for each, 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 of, the, each of their fellow soldiers. I could see why that in, in the training like that, that they become so close to each other. That's Delvin Smutku of Stockholm. As a post-war kid, he listened in as three WW2 veterans, one of them his dad, shared their memories and a drink or two. And a veteran of two deployments to Canada's role in the Afghan conflict, Paul Valiquette's battle with PTSD. With all the stuff I've seen, I came back and uh, the first couple of weeks wasn't too bad. Um, after that, I started getting uh, nightmares. I couldn't sleep. Um, I was getting triggered by stuff on TV. If I heard stuff about um, Afghanistan, I would just do the thousand-mile stare. Um, mood swings. Um, my wife would say I would go out from my moods would change like within 0.2 milliseconds. Also in this hour of remembrance, important reminders. Here's Yorkton MLA Greg Ottenbright. As a young boy, I, I was a member of the Sea Cadets, so we took part regularly in Remembrance Day ceremonies, and it always struck me just the, the emotion and the, the impact of that day. Not only the music and the bagpipes and, 
and just the uh, the whole message that was delivered on Remembrance Days, but also to see those veterans uh, marching in and uh, their pride, but also seeing on their face the uh, the impact that their experience has had on them and how we we're able to enjoy the freedoms and the democracy we do today because of what they did and what they sacrificed, those that came back and those that didn't. Uh, you know, it, it did impact me personally very, very much, and it's been a very high priority for me ever since to make sure I not only attend Remembrance Day ceremonies, but acknowledge those veterans, again, those that came before, those that we lost, those that are still with us, but also those public servants, uh, RCMP and others that are serving today, our military that served today, and how we are so indebted to them for their sacrifices that we can enjoy the life we do here in Canada. Uh, you know, I've heard it said that the flag uh, of our country doesn't fly by the wind, but it flies by the breath of those that uh, perished to ensure our democracy and our freedom. And I always remember that. It's very important, I believe. Uh, I also know uh, a quote, uh, remember a quote by former President Ronald Reagan, who said that democracy and freedom isn't something that gets passed on from generation to generation. It has to be fought for time and time again. And I encourage all youth listening to this that don't take for granted the lifestyle we have, the freedom, the democracy. It's something you have to stand for and fight for every single day, generation to generation. So I just encourage you not to ever forget that, to always stand for what's right and for the freedom and democracy of our country. And always acknowledge the vets, not only on Remembrance Day, but year round. Uh, if you see a vet, recognize a vet, a police officer, uh, active military personnel, always acknowledge them, recognize them, and thank them for their service because it's very important that we do do that over and over again. Uh, you know, it brings to mind every Remembrance Day, and it's something that I, I hold close to my heart, is John 15, 13, where he says, No greater love has any man than to lay down his life for his friends. And it's in the connotations of Christ dying on the cross for us, but it can easily be transpired over to the sacrifice of our veterans uh, for the sacrifices that they did for us. Not only those that, that perished, but also that came back and the burdens that they continue to carry after serving our country. Uh, Winston Churchill said uh, right after the Battle of Britain, uh, no time in history has so much been owed by so many to so few. Those veterans that fought for us and turned the course of the World War to uh, in Britain, uh, where we could have easily been gone the other way. So I just encourage you to uh, uh, not celebrate, but acknowledge Remembrance Day and uh, acknowledge the vets and never forget. We will remember them.
Hello, I'm Jack Dawes. In this year of the pandemic, the regular acts of remembrance had to be COVID-sensitive, and many creative people emerged to answer the call. For example, trench warfare. We've all seen those black and white movie clips from World War One: the mud-filled trenches, underground caverns cut out of the rock by both warring sides. So we pause to salute Clavette High School history teacher Jonathan Nickel, who decided on a hands-on project with his grade 11 class. With help from education assistant Shirley Salahub, Nickel and his students dug a trench, no ordinary trench, but in the First World War mode. Complete report said with many wartime features such as planks over the mud, a platform to look over top, and some boots stuck in the mud. Well, aside from the fact that most school kids will do almost anything to avoid regular schoolwork, the Clovet class dug in literally by hand, a trench described as just over 9 meters long and 2 meters deep, roughly 30 feet by 6 feet deep. Well, with safety issues in consideration, the trench was soon to be filled in afterwards with a tractor. So we send a Remembrance Day salute to Jonathan Nickel and the Clavette High School grade 11s for a courageous and unique Remembrance Day tribute. Up to mighty London came an Irish lad one day. All the streets were paved with gold, so everyone was gay. Singing songs of Piccadilly, Strand and Leicester Square. Till Paddy got excited and he shouted to them there. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary to the sweetest girl I know. Well, here's another creative example of winning the war with COVID for Remembrance Day 2020. At Stockholm, southeast of Yorkton, Legion members will use some tried and true technology at their cenotaph today. Some not really new technology, but certainly technology known only to a few, we are sure, in the 1940s and World War II. Legion member Delvin Smutku. I think we're one of the first legions to come up with this ideal. We're still going to have our service. It's going to be an outdoor service at our cenotaph. And what we're actually planning is the wreaths will be laid beforehand by all the people that usually do, do lay their wreaths in remembrances of certain businesses or certain veterans. What we are inviting people to come. We're actually going to get a local fellow by the name of Trevor Kerr that has a, the soundstage music business. And he has uh, graciously uh, accepted the job of... Uh, Put the, put the whole service onto FM. So when the people arrive at service, they will not have to get out of their vehicles. They can stay in their vehicles to maintain all the social distancing. And the, the small service we will have will be transmitted over an FM station. And so they'll be able to listen in. And we hope to have the RCMP in the, in the service along with the, the bugler for the, for the, for the, for the, for the music. And uh, then after that, actually, we we're certainly hoping that the people will will donate something to our legion, as this is a costly thing for us to put on. But at least we felt that this way the veterans would be remembered, and it's it's very important in our minds. An outdoor gathering, people come in, they they just listen to the service on FM from their cars. 
Yes, that's that's what our plan is and stuff. And if people want to donate anything to our legion, uh, what we'll, we'll do is we'll have people going around picking up the donations, or we're, we'll have an uh, uh, what is that called now? An e-transfer available. Uh, it's the way our legion can survive. So we we need help from the people too. The Stockholm Outdoor in Your Car service begins at 2 p.m. Delvin Smutku's dad, Joe, carried the scars of war literally on his hip, a wound to his hip the size of your fist. It stayed with him the rest of his life. Delvin learned about how that injury came about and how three 19-year-old boys became men amid the grit, grind, and terror of World War II in a sort of a way, eavesdropping. Well, actually, Jack, what it was, was we uh, when I was just a young fella growing up here, uh, we had a really small house, and... Uh, we uh, we basically only had two bedrooms in the house, so basically my sister was in one bedroom, my mom and dad in the other, and I was kind of the odd man out. So the living room became my place to sleep on the Chesterfield or whatever they called it, I think at Davenport in those days. And we had a wooden stove, and you know at Remembrance Day, the three veteran, uh, the three people that I always listened to was my dad and the other fellow's name was Bill Stang, and Jimmy Bullock. And Remembrance Day, they would always seem to come out to my dad's place, either shortly, either a couple of days before Remembrance Day or a couple of days after. And they would just sit down and they would, they would usually put a, a bottle of something on the table and we'd be late evening and they would start talking about some of their experiences. And, and so I would, I would be, of course, laying on the Chesterfield and I'd hear all this. So I'd creep in by the wood stove and kind of sit down there and, listen to them and I, I was just fascinated by some of their stories about you know when they were overseas because all three of them were uh, were overseas so uh, uh, as as veterans uh, you've related to me some some of the anecdotes but uh, uh, I, I guess there were a lot of uh, they remembered a lot of it uh, as uh, adventurous but there were of course some horrific moments as well uh, just just talk about that a little bit, what you heard these boys uh, uh, saying, uh, Dylan. Well, you know, they would start, I, I remember this so well, uh, as I tell you the story, I can see it in my mind. They would start stories, you know, they'd have a couple drinks and they'd start, they'd start funny stories, like Jimmy Bullock would talk about there was a certain time when he was he was actually wounded in the wrist, but it wasn't in action. Basically, what it was is he had snuck into an orange grove in the evening and tried to get an orange off a tree, and a sniper had shot him in the wrist. So, you know, they, they bugged him quite a bit about that, about the, the wounds like that. And I remember my dad often speaking about going across in the, I, I think it was the Queen Mary, if I'm not mistaken, and they would have to zigzag their course all the way to Europe to avoid German U-boats, and uh, he would talk about when they would be sitting on deck playing cards, and of course they were all country boys that weren't used to uh, any kind of transportation like this, and they were getting seasick, and he said it took about four days before they were actually able to finish a game of cards without going on deck and uh, relieving themselves, but uh, they were basically funny stories, but you know, the the interesting part was as as they got more into it, you could you could hear the sadness come in. There were there were there were stories, you know, of of uh, just of some of their feelings and stuff. Like I remember one story in particular where uh, 
they, my dad was uh, talking about, they were fighting in the Ardennes. His unit was there, and they they had tried to cross the Ryan River the way he talked twice. And they both, they were driven back both times. So the third time, they, uh, my dad said that they threw kind of a, a real, not a party, but more of a, like they could eat all the food they wanted the night before. They, and they had all the rum they could drink, he said. But in the morning, their commanding officers told them that now they have to cross the river and uh, there would be no turning back. And what really stuck in my mind was my dad described the river to Jim and to Bill Stang. He said the river was like a hailstorm with bullets, like that's how the bullets were hitting the water. And he said they basically lifted their rifles because the water, he said, he said, was chest deep, and they literally walked across. And what struck me so much, Jack, was the, the feeling that would take to just to actually give everything up and just walk across in this water and basically resign yourself to the, 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 what the faith had in store for you. And to me, that was incredible, like that feeling of something like that. So, so in other words, yeah, part of their daily business was to contemplate the fact that this could be the day they're, they're the one that's dead. Well, you know, what, what amazed me is it made me think right away because a, a few years back, I basically encountered, I, I was, I was show, showing horses down in the States at the, at the World Clydesdale Show, and um, I had a massive heart attack, and the doctor actually told me that afternoon he didn't expect me to survive the, the heart attack. And, you know, that's, that's quite a thing. You know, you, you, you hear that, and you don't really know how to respond to it. But you have to come to bear with that. And, and you know, I did that. Well, then, you know, I, I did survive, and, and everything was fine. But, you know, when you're told that, it really hits you hard. It's hard to accept that. And I got to think it after that. It bothered me for a long time because I thought, you know, here I was for that little bit of time. You know, they told me this, and, and, I, and I found that really hard. And then these veterans, every day they face that, and every day that they survived that, they knew the next day they had to face the same thing again. And then the other thing that really troubled me is every day it seemed that odds got worse. And just to live with that and to and to carry that with you every day, that that would really have to paint your life. Well, though, you also have some lighter moments, I guess, or happier times when these guys, even though they weren't in the same units, they they encountered each other a few times in Europe, did they? Actually, what was amazing was um, uh, there were a couple times that they really talked about is when. I guess they, they weren't in the same units, but Jimmy Bullock and my dad. Now, my dad was a sergeant, and uh, his unit was just heading out. And from what I understand, Jimmy's unit was just coming back. So there was a big food line there. And in all of Europe, what I found so amazing is here they saw each other, one coming out of battle, one going into battle. And each of them were at a food line just eating, ready to go. And... Two people from Stockholm, Saskatchewan, ran into each other, and I guess they had a lot of stories to share. But I mean, they, I'm sure they also bugged each other a lot and had some good times over it. The other interesting part, Jack, was uh, my dad was wounded in uh, in Belgium, and uh, Bill Stang was at that time with the Red Cross, and uh, Bill was actually the one 
that found him when he was wounded. And uh, again, the coincidence of something like that happening to me was incredible. In all of Europe, the, uh, one person from same, two people from the same area running into each other in a situation like that. So uh, basically, a medic from Stockholm happens to rescue a, a rifleman, uh, like virtually on a battlefield aftermath, uh, both from the same town but different units, and and they meet in Belgium. Exactly right, and like the coincidence of that happening is is profound. Well, absolutely. Um, so so these were young guys, twenty uh, year olds, I guess. So I, I guess it's no wonder that I, I guess for most of their lives, uh, their memories of their overseas and their battle experiences was probably what dominated their thoughts uh, most of the time. Would you say, Delvin? Oh, for sure. Like you know, they all they always spend time together. Those three guys, especially. What what amazed me is about them is they they were all very quiet individuals. But when they got together, is they they seem to have this bond. And I think. For them, all all of them, and probably and all veterans would probably be the same. They seem to share a comradeship or a fellowship with with those, with those veterans that was just incredible. I remember going to uh, Remembrance Day ceremonies with them, and I mean they they would visit with other people. There was lots of fun, lots of joking, and stuff like that. But there was this deep respect for each other, which I think today maybe we're Maybe we have to learn from them because they have such a respect for each 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 of the each of their fellow soldiers. I could see why that in in the training like that that they become so close to each other. of Yorkton to the other, this year's salute to veterans is right there in front of us on a lamppost. How did it come about? Tammy Hall knows. Well, the Legion Banner Project for Yorkton came about uh, shortly after I went to Vancouver to visit our son and daughter-in-law about a year ago. And we were driving down one of the main streets in Vancouver, and I was overwhelmed with hundreds of banners beautifully showing off veterans, their names, the conflict in, in which they had been involved, the wars, the service that they, they had given to their country. And it was it was just beautiful and so stirring. Um, and immediately I thought of my dad, who was a Korean War veteran, and I thought of Yorkton and the, the wonderful legion that we have here, and I thought, we have to bring this back to Yorkton. So um, that was kind of the birth of it. Sean, my husband and I, uh, we talked to people at the city, we talked to people at the legion, and everybody jumped on board and was so supportive. And that's what brought us through today with our wonderful banners hanging on the streets of Broadway and Darlington. So tell me about the logistics uh, in between. 
<laughs> well, and of course, that that's always the fun part of any project, right, is uh, the logistics, trying to make sure that we uh, fit in with the banner policy for the city, make sure our uh, measurements are correct, make sure our material is correct, make sure that we can contact our uh, veterans' families and sponsors and get the information that we need from them, make sure that the pictures are clear and uh, and that our editing is, is correct. Uh, lots of work, of groundwork, um, and and funding is a big thing also. But the city pulled through with it for us with that, and it was just uh, our sponsors, our families have been wonderful. So lots of details, but we managed to pull it all together. Well, your enthusiasm I know has uh, spread to a lot of people. So obviously the response from people you talk to, I'm sure, has been uh, encouraging. It has. You know, people have been so welcoming, so supportive, um, and so helpful with us. I, I think bringing the banner program to Yorkton for me was, of course, a heart project, but it also connected with people on another level. Remember, Day is very important in Yorkton. We do a great job of, of um, honoring our veterans on that day. Having the banners up for, for the six weeks before Remembrance Day makes it I think even more human, more personal, we can see the faces of the men and women who served. We can see uh, their stories when we read the biographies. And I think it brings it a little bit more to the forefront to honor and to pay tribute to them more than just the one day of Remembrance Day. Tammy Hall is a retired school teacher who ended her career as a well-loved and respected principal at Dr. Brass School in Yorkton. She told me the story of her dad, Wally Osman, and his military career. Trained as a marksman and a sharpshooter also, paratrooper also, but then um, after that initial training, he received additional training as a radio operator. So, of course, he's the guy when you go out and patrol and you got the nice, big, long uh, aerial <laughs> sticking up in the air. It's kind of a great target. And, yeah, he was posted to Korea and spent uh, three UN tours of duty there, so more than 18 months um, at the front in various positions in Korea. Uh, Dad really didn't talk an awful lot about it initially, and it wasn't until his later years that we he shared a few stories with us. He did say that those months... Um, spent in Korea were both the best times of his life, but also some of the worst times of his life. So uh, when we think of our young boys going out, when I think about some of the high school students that I see now and, and imagine them going out into battle, it's it's terrifying. It's mind-boggling. Um, and yet we have so many wonderful people who did volunteer their time. So... Uh... I have talked to to Wally in the past about some of those things, uh, and it certainly rings true with me. Um, in some ways, the Korean conflict was—I've uh, heard veterans refer to it as the Forgotten War. Mm -hmm. Did he feel that way about it? Oh, absolutely. And and actually, calling it the Korean conflict was a sore point for many of them. Since um, since that initial uh, title, I guess, because it was called the Forgotten War and because so many of the veterans did fight for recognition, it has been changed now to be recognized as an actual war, no longer a conflict, because it, it was a war. And um, these soldiers were, were fought at and they risked their lives. Over 500 people lost their lives in the short time that the Korean War um, occurred. And 
yeah, he he fought for that recognition too because their service should be as valid as as any other um, peacekeeping missions or wars. So it, it was it was something that it was important to many of the Korean War veterans, definitely. Tammy, in my own experience, I keep finding that I didn't ask enough questions of my mm-hmm. parents and other mm-hmm. family members. What about you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. As I mentioned, Dad didn't really talk an awful lot about his service when we were younger, and it wasn't until his later years that he shared stories. But there are so many questions that I have now. And when we go through his papers and um, read some of the writings that he uh, created uh, in his later years, there are so many things that we would want more details on. And, uh, you know, he, he wrote poetry when he was over there. I never, I never had, would have thought my dad as a poet, but we've, we've discovered poems from his time over there. We've discovered stories. And um, I know he, he told one story about a friend that he had made during training, and they were so close. He, they just were the best of friends. One of the first nights that they were over in Korea, uh, a, a bunch of the, the guys had to go out on a tour, and it was just a reconnaissance tour. But they were attacked, and so the people left in camp had to go out and help bring in the wounded. And it was dark, and it was scary, and there was shooting. And uh, one of the, the first people that Dad came upon, he touched the legs, noticed it was a body. Uh, they got them on the stretcher, and when they got it back, they realized that uh, the young boy was dead, and it was Dad's best friend. So that was his one of his very first nights in Korea. That's that's an amazing story. Took mm. my breath away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, well, at some point, I would love to uh, uh, get you to share some of uh, Wally's poems. Uh, I, I I knew him casually, of course, and had no, no idea he was also a poet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, pardon a dumb question. So, obviously, uh, that affects everything. To, tell me about how Wally and Doreen. Uh, ended up together, how they got married, or what was their connection? Hmm. <laughs> well, um, mom and dad actually met when my when, when both of them were quite young. My dad uh, was a hired hand on my, my mother's farm. My, my uh, grandpa hired him, and dad was kind of a, a wild kid. He was a bit of a rebel. His own father had died at 13 when my dad was 13, and... Um, so Wally was on the farm trying to to help out his own family and working elsewhere when he could find other jobs. Read a lot of adventure stories, which was led him to enlist and go to Korea. And uh, Mum was the quiet, uh, booky um, person, kind of you know a big reader and and uh, quiet young only child of the farmer. They met on the farm. Grandpa wouldn't let them see each other for the longest time, but of course, forbidding a relationship makes it all the more interesting and more exciting, and uh, they ended up writing an awful lot of letters when Dad was over in Korea. He came back, and um, there, that was the beginning. They they got married. What a great story. a very story. good story. Sorry, and, I didn't tell that very well. No, it, it's, a good, it's a good story. You did well. Where was the farm? Uh, it's in around the Spy Hill area. I see. Well, uh, Tammy, uh, there's a million more questions, but I really 
appreciate you sharing this with me. And uh, the the Legion Pro- Banner Project is is great. Uh, now you are also a, reti- a teacher. Are you retired? Uh, yes, semi-retired. I'm something yeah. now. Hmm? So if you don't mind, then uh, I'll just ask you about the schools and Remembrance Day and. Some people feel that uh, Remembrance Day is uh, overblown or unnecessary, but what was your approach as as a teacher based on your experience? Mm -hmm. Well, I think because of my dad being a veteran, um, it was something that we always grew up with. We went to Remembrance Day services every year, and when we had our son, we continued that tradition with him. So for me, it was very important to recognize this day and, and honor the veterans so in school, every school that I was at, we always made sure that we had a, a good lead-up to Remembrance Day, but then also a, a really nice, I wouldn't call it a celebration, but um, a bit of a service, a, a recognition of Remembrance Day. We would try to, again, bring in that human element because it's important not to celebrate war. We don't want to do that. Nobody wants a war. Nobody wants to send our young men and women off to battle. Nobody wants to have them come home alive to continue their young lives. But what we want to do is to say, let's remember what happened. Let's recognize what happened. And let's try to make sure that we don't let it happen again. Let's celebrate peace. Let's find out ways that we can prevent this from ever happening again. But honor the people who gave us the wonderful country that we do have. When we think about what's happening in some of the countries around us, I know we're not perfect in Canada. I know we have our own issues, but uh, wow, we are so lucky to live where we do live and to have the rights and the privileges that we do have. And that's in in large part because of men and women that do serve for us in the past, in the present, and sadly, those that will have to do this in the future. Wally Osman from Farmhand to Soldier, told by his daughter, Tammy Hall. He was one of the Princess Pats who served Canada in the Korean War. Wally and his wife Doreen Osman ran an upholstery and fabric shop for over 20 years in Yorkton. I'm proud to say I was one of Wally Osman's friends. He was just one of many veterans I admired. He passed away in 2010, his wife Doreen in 2016. This is Remembrance Day 2020. I'm Jack Dawes. The Canadian Legion notes that the work of our military and RCMP members can lead to mental health difficulties. A special mental health website states, we cannot assist directly in the specialized area of mental health, but the compassionate professionals from the service office network can assist. There are numerous programs and services available for veterans and their families. One of the victims of service-related stress now as a mental health worker for the military, Paul Valiquet now lives in Regina, but he grew up in Ontario. Uh, ever since uh, we taught, I've always been in uniform, so I was in uh, Cub Scouts, Scouts, and then Army Cadet. And then I uh, graduated from high school, went to Ottawa for college, and after my college, everything didn't work out so well, no jobs and that, so... Since I had the military background as cadets, I joined the Army in 95. What branch or what was your unit? When I joined, it was radio operator. Um, it changed names a couple times throughout my career. So, um, But, yeah, so basically I was an Army signals operator. So main task was whenever you're out in the field, I'd be the radio guy either with the troops or at the command post. 
or if I'm in garrison, maybe doing uh, radios or working on satellite communications and stuff like that. Eventually, soldier Paul Valiquet would serve two rotations in action in Afghanistan. Went over, uh, my first time was in Southwest Asia, Afghanistan. And then my last tour in Afghanistan was in uh, 2005 when uh, the troops moved from Kabul to Kandahar. I was at the Provincial Reconstruction Team site south of Kandahar. We opened that up in 2005. So tell me about that experience, if you would. Um, it was very interesting. Um, mostly my tours beforehand were um, not as uh, not really as combat. Um, the last one was pretty much I was with the uh, engineers with the um, giving signal support to the the bomb team. So um, basically, whenever something happened, I went out with them and seen uh, devastation and. Uh, if I didn't see devastation, I seen where we got called out for caches, which means, say, like fines, and then the uh, actual engineers defused the ordinance and everything else. That Afghanistan tour was from July 2005 to February 2006. At the time, it was just, it was just, it went by very quickly because we were always busy. We were calling, we were getting reports weekly type things, so we were always going out. So for that, it was very busy. And learned a lot from the, the engineers and the different uh, elements on the ground, like the infantry and their uh, roles and everything else. Um, so it was great for that and everything else, and then meeting the local population and seeing how they lived and everything else. It was it was good that. And then when I redeployed back to Canada, that's when I started having all my uh, issues with my mental health. Uh, Paul, so when you were in Afghanistan, uh, I. I I'd be interested in help, trying to get you to help me understand what was your attitude or approach to it? Like, did you feel you were there doing a service for your country or was it, okay, that's my job. I signed up for it. I'm here. Can you help, help me relate to that a little bit? Yeah, it was my job. Yeah. But like I said, I've done uh, numerous deployments overseas and in country. So it was basically, you know, what you do your job for your country and help to build the the reputation for Canada overseas in Afghanistan. So it, it, felt, it felt kind of well to help the local population and have a sense that, you know, we're doing something instead of actually creating more, like, battles type thing. We were helping to either build schools, build roads, stuff like that. So uh, it was actually a good thing. It was a good experience to say that we did something over there. But back in Canada, Afghanistan memories were hard to shake for Paul Valiquet. With all the stuff I've seen, I came back and uh, the first couple of weeks wasn't too bad. Um, after that, I started getting uh, nightmares. I couldn't sleep. I was getting triggered by stuff on TV. If I heard stuff about um, Afghanistan, I would just do the thousand mile stare. Uh, mood swings. My wife would say I would go out from my moods would change like within 0.2 milliseconds. So all that stuff started going away, um, happening to me. And then when I found out something was really going on is I was in a, a shopping store with my son, Michael, and he was a little about nine years old. Somebody bumped into me and it was a skinny man with a beard. And I guess I had a flashback towards overseas and I started to move my shoulder to say to strike him and my son went up and said dad what are you doing um so that was a, a wake-up call for me 
Treatment for Paul included medication. Oh, the pressure was really getting to me, and I had physical injuries as well that was being um, prominently brought out because of my mental health. So I medically retired out of back and out of the public service. And about a month after that, I started to uh, volunteer at the Legion Command Office. So helping uh, veterans that are in crisis or families or uh, help them with Veterans Affairs claims and stuff like that. And about a year after, I became a part-time paid employee. And and is that? That's what I'm doing this now. Yes, I am. I, I see. So, Paul, the, the, the mental health issues, uh, is that something that you still deal with? Yes. Like, I, I still go to therapy. I'm not, I don't deny that. I still take my medication. I'm very thankful not too many people think of Veterans Affairs and they don't like them. They think um, a really turn off, but they've changed so much in the, the past years. Now I get counseling. My wife gets counseling for her for to help with my stuff, and then we get uh, couples therapy. So uh, Veterans Affairs have been doing well on that. Uh, so And another type of therapy, like everybody has heard, is exposure therapy. So basically working with veterans and still serving members – keeps me in line type thing, and now I'm the, uh, well, before the pandemic hit, I was the only certified instructor for the mental health first aid for veteran community courses, but now that's been put on pause, and I'm on the working committee to make a course or a virtual so people don't have to leave their houses, they can do it right at home. We thank Paul Valiquet for his frankness and openness to talk about mental health issues. This is Remembrance 2020 on The Rock. In our next segment, Paul Valiquet moves on. This is Remembrance 2020, part two of sharing the story of a veteran of the Afghan conflict. Despite his hopes, unfortunately, the pressure of life and work did not go away for veteran Paul Valiquet. Well, the pressure was really getting to me, and uh, I had physical injuries as well that was prominently brought out because of my mental health. So I medically retired out of back and out of the public service. And about a month after that, I started to uh, volunteer at the Legion Command Office. Um, so helping uh, veterans that are in crisis or families or uh, help them with Veterans Affairs claims and stuff like that. And about a year after, I became a part-time paid employee. And, and is, that, is, that, is that what you do these days? That's what I'm doing this now. Yes, I am. So, Paul, the the, the mental health issues, uh, is that something that you still deal with? Yes. Like, I, I still go to therapy. I still take my medication. I'm very thankful. Not too many people think of Veterans Affairs. and They don't like them. They think um, a really turn off, but they've changed so much in the, the past years. Now I get counseling. My wife gets counseling for her for to help with my stuff, and then we get uh, couples therapy. So... Um, Veterans Affairs have been doing well on that. So, and another type of therapy, like everybody has heard, is exposure therapy. So, basically, working with veterans and still serving members keeps me in line type thing. And now I'm the, uh, well, before the pandemic hit, I was the only certified instructor for mental health first aid for veteran community courses. But now that's been put on pause, and I'm on the working committee to make a course or a virtual. So people don't have to leave their houses, they can do it right at home. Paul and his first wife were divorced following his second deployment to Afghanistan, but, and I thank him again for his frankness, he remarked, uh, to my eldest Sarah, 
she's married and she lives in Kingston, Ontario. And then I have the twins, which is Michael and Angie. They're aka Ice Storm babies because uh, I was in Ontario and the ice storm happened, and we can talk about that after. And then uh, my stepdaughter Taylor. So uh, Sarah, like I said, is married. Uh, Michael is in Queen's University in Ontario, in Kingston. He wants to become a doctor. He actually wants to be a uh, uh, like a, a pathologist for the brain, so he wants to study the brain mechanisms and everything else. And she sees in Ottawa. She was going to go to school, but that's been put on pause. And my stepdaughter, Taylor, is just finishing up an aesthetics course here in Regina. So um, it was difficult in the kids. My wife had to keep on telling them. They were saying, what's wrong with dad? He would go mood swings and everything else. And the good thing about kids, they're very resilient. Like when that happened, Michael started researching, saying, well, dad, you know, back then he had, it was called shell shock. It was called battle fatigue and all like this. So he started doing a lot of research. Basically, the whole family helped me. Like, I'll give you an example. Fireworks. I couldn't go to fireworks after just because of the loud noises and like that. But uh, my family, when we would go, they would hold my hands and everything else and said it would be okay and everything else. So they've, they've helped a lot through my, my recovery and process. Uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is I'm just wondering, uh, uh, how about your wife? Uh, I would love to talk to her sometime, but uh, yeah. tell me a little bit about your husband-wife relationship. You, well, you've already given me a picture. But, uh, that's okay. Yeah, like um, my first marriage where I had Sarah and Michael and Angie, unfortunately, when I came back from Afghanistan the second time, it didn't go too well. We separated and uh, divorced, um, which put us uh, like a toll on the kids, which is, uh, which is normal type thing. Um, and then I met Danielle. Her father had types of mental health because of his physical health. He had a heart problem, so it led to more, like, depression. So she kind of understood that. She's been instrumental. She's been taking a lot of courses on mental health to help me and help others. Right now, presently, she's the family coordinator for OSI CAN for the province of Saskatchewan. So if a family member needs help or needs peer support, she can offer that and offer resources within the communities. Oh, God bless the woman. Uh. Leaving his work behind at Veterans Affairs has led Paul Valiquet, Afghan veteran two times over, to happier times. Like I said, Veterans Affairs, they've opened up the new offices, which is great. Gives more personnel. It's just there's need for more help, and that's the whole point, right? So now at the Legion Command Office, I work three days a week, so at least I have a break uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays so I can focus on my health. And uh, it's been going great. So for now, what are the lessons and what's the future for Paul Valiquet, his wife Danielle, and their family? Well, the good thing is, if the, for the mental health part, things are changing, which is great. It needs to be done. It needs to be focused that, you know what, it is a medical condition and uh, people should not be ashamed of it. And there's been a lot of people, we've seen it on the news, even actors coming out saying that they have been diagnosed and they've been living day by day uh, so that's the great part is and hopefully I'm doing that and my wife's doing that is to uh, alleviate the stigma of mental health and to let people know that you know what either if you're a veteran or whatever you can still go to the legion for support 
my wife can give you support, and even if you're not a veteran, you come to Legion, we can still send out resources to tell where, where you can go and everything else. So I think it's going to be a great future for us anyway. According to the Legion, immediate emergency help is available for veterans and their families. If it's an emergency or crisis, someone can call 911. There's also 24-hour bilingual telephone report. The number, 1-800-268-7708. That's 1-800-268-7708. And again, we thank Paul Valiquette for his willingness to help us understand. Well, we thank our willing interviewees and our friends and colleague Phil DeVos who introduced the program, just as we thank the veterans who've served in any way. But we close this 2020 Remembrance Day tribute remembering that wartime included civilians, so we asked longtime Yorkton resident Sheila Harris for insight. In World War II, her dad, Warrant Officer Herbert Hastings Linfoot, was a Royal Canadian Navy engineer. The Linfoot family found themselves on the West Coast in a time of very real threat from Japan, originally near Bradner in the Fraser Valley mainland. We were in Grenfell. I was five years old, and Dad worked for Canadian Utilities. Anyway, he uh, joined up and went to Regina and spent six weeks in there. Uh, He joined the Royal Canadian Volunteer Reserve. That's the RCNVR. And uh, then from there, he was posted to Esquimalt for the balance of his training. And then uh, that's when my mom decided that we should move to the uh, coast because uh, her sister lived out there, her sister and her husband, and uh, uh, also many of the Linfoot relatives. So we moved out there, and uh, I was probably in grade uh, two when we moved out to the coast. That would be 1941. But in the 20th century, the 1940s children weren't told much about war, even though they were in it. I learned more about the war many years later. But uh, while we were out there, uh, probably one of the major events, uh, Dad was posted to Prince Rupert, which was a very important city for the, for the Navy from the north because of the Japanese coming in uh, from the Aleutian Islands down the west coast. But after Pearl Harbor in December 41, uh, the West Coast uh, had all the way down uh, from B.C. way down into the United States had blackout uh, laws. And uh, we we lived in New Westminster, and uh, the siren would ring. Uh, you had to cover your windows. And if there was one peep of light showing, the warden would come to the door and scold you. And anyway, half the time, Mum would say, let's go to bed. (laughs) Because we had hung blankets and whatever all over the windows. So that, that was kind of scary. Also, rationing. There was food rationing, and we all had coupons. 
my mom had coupons, but she had some for my sister and I, and uh, that was for buying bread, food, almost any kind of food. You couldn't, if you didn't have the coupons, you couldn't get the food. And uh, so it was rather scary. The Linfoot family moved several times, but life, the Linfoot family moved a few times, but life for the kids, school carried on. And I walked. We had uh, good neighbors, Japanese neighbors, and uh, we walked to school with uh, the Japanese kids, and we knew them all. Our our school was pretty well multicultural. We had uh, Hindus, Japanese, Chinese, uh, all who had immigrated to Canada or were born in Canada. Anyway, uh, we... Uh, Eventually, from New Westminster, we ended up moving back to Bradner area, and uh, my friends, my Japanese friends, were gone. They weren't there anymore, and uh, nobody explained specifically what happened there again. I didn't learn about the internment camps until many, many years later, and uh a wonderful book I read in the last couple of years, uh, written by Brendan Coyle, uh, called War on Your Doorstep. And uh, it explains all the West Coast and the submarines, that, uh, the Japanese submarines that were coming in off the coast. Uh, and uh, Prince Rupert, they've got a, sh- a bomb shells showing and all kinds of things. War was a reality, but kids didn't know much about it. Because uh, when we went to the Bradner School, we even had um, uh, practicing, uh, in case there was an air raid, we had to practice going into the bush and hiding and doing all kinds of things like that. But I don't remember being afraid. Well, did let's say in later years, maybe did your mother talk about it more? Uh, no, you know, nobody talked fear? about it. I My dad didn't talk one thing about the war. And then, of course, from Prince Rupert, after the first two years, it would be about 40, almost 1940, uh, end of 43, uh, he was deployed to St. John's, Newfoundland. And, uh, and so we didn't see him for two years until the war was over in uh, 1945. And, uh, and of course, that's, I was just thinking today that uh, it's exactly 75 years ago that we arrived in Yorkton. Post-war, housing was not available in Yorkton, but the Linfoot family settled into post-war life. Herb Linfoot became the manager of the Yorkton power plant of the day. Sheila Linfoot, with her late husband Gordon, farmed Maple Grove Farm just south of the city. The Harrises were huge community supporters, longtime members and directors of the Yorkton Exhibition. By the way, Sheila recently completed writing her memoirs, and the book will be available soon. Its title, Cow, Sow, and Sheila. Thank you for listening to Remembrance 2020 on The Rock, and thanks to Phil DeVos for his introduction, and most importantly, our producer, tech wizard, Jordan Patswold. Just ahead, a final word from Member of Parliament, Kathy Wagenthal. I'm Jack Dawes. 
Remembrance Day reminds us all of our country's place in the world and our duty as citizens to honour those who have given their lives for our privilege to live as Canadians. Canada is barely 150 years old, yet the sacrifices made by generations of men and women have matured our country beyond its years. We're known globally as a courageous warrior and a dependable ally. However, this reputation didn't come without cost. This year, we're reminded that over 1 million Canadians served and over 45,000 made the ultimate sacrifice in the Second World War. 2020 marks 75 years since the end of the war and Canada's victory over tyranny. The duty to remember our fallen is not confined to Remembrance Day. Today, wearing a poppy reminds us to pause and reflect, but our local veterans, our neighborhood legions, and the community war memorials are cherished and enduring reminders of the price paid for the freedoms we take for granted. Each day, let's remember to remember, lest we forget.